uh, good to good to have you if you're on the YouTube page thank you for saying hello again you can you can actually say hello now just let me know that you're here so I can see you uh, involved in the comments or in the chat really appreciate that uh, because of uh, how the circumstances are hello Joe um, because of the coronavirus and are not being able to gather in person we are gathering temporarily in this form but thank the Lord that we have this form via the technology of our time again if you're watching me on calvaryem.org that's great but you can uh, actually there's a better way for you to to watch and be involved consider switching over over to the live stream that we have on the YouTube page via the URL on the screen and then you can take advantage of the chat you can ask questions you can answer questions that I ask and you can be edified by the comments of the others who are in the stream but we're we're continuing on in Sunday school today we still need the word we still need to uh, be encouraged and to be encouraging one another so let's get to the word in the book of Joshua we've been seeing how God has been fulfilling his promises those promises that were given to Abraham back many years before but we're seeing how those are being fulfilled in the people of Israel actually obtaining the land of Canaan via the conquest last time we saw Israel make its first conquest in the land of Canaan via Jericho this ancient and mighty city was brought down it found no protection behind its great walls God actually brought those walls down and thus in Jericho we see a clear testimony both of God's ability to bring victory and display his mighty power on behalf of his people but also to take away the security and to judge and destroy those who will not repent of their sin Jericho was a city of wickedness and God judged it and it is an unstoppable judgment and speaking of unstoppable I mentioned to you before how Israel since it's really arrived on the eastern side of the Jordan it has seemed like an unstoppable juggernaut not because Israel itself has a great amount of power but because Yahweh is fighting for Israel Israel is wiping out kingdoms right and left causing all the wicked nations to fear but today we're going to talk about how that conquest comes to a screeching halt at least for a moment the juggernaut is stopped Israel will be defeated and by a seemingly insignificant opponent and why does this happen and what would be needed for Israel to have victory once again under Yahweh and how will God re reassert dramatically reassert his power on behalf of Israel afterwards that's what we're going to talk about today and as we do so we're going to we're going to learn more for ourselves how we can continue on under the blessing of Yahweh and not be defeated in the struggles that we face I'm talking about our spiritual struggles let's pray and then we'll begin to hear from God's Word in Joshua let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you that you are sovereign you will always take care of your people because you've promised to even through the trials even through the difficulties Lord, we're reminded of certain scriptures in the Old Testament where you promised that there would be nothing that would harm your people that that you had not ordained you will bring your people through even through fire and you will bring them safely into your heavenly kingdom at your appointed time so Lord we rest in your sovereignty 
Lord, I pray that we'd be encouraged by your word today, that you'd help me to explain it well and accurately. Thank you for these people who have tuned in. I pray that you'd encourage, sober, and work in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I see a number of other good mornings. Thank you. Good to see you. All right, please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua 7. We're picking up right where we left off last time with the destruction of Jericho. But before we read Joshua 7, just take a look back quickly in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua 6 verses 17 and 19. And we're going to be we want to recall some special orders given by Joshua to the people of Israel. This is right before Jericho's destruction. Look at Jer uh, Jericho, Joshua 6, verses 17 and 19, where it says, The city shall be under the ban, and all it and all that is in it belongs to the Lord, that is Yahweh, covenant name of God. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed, and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to Yahweh. They shall go into the treasury of Yahweh. And now notice from these verses in Joshua, Joshua 6, what Joshua says will be the effect of someone taking something under the ban that is something that was accursed and devoted to Yahweh. That person who transgresses in such a way will make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. And this one is going to explain a lot of what we're about to see. Let's now look at Joshua 7 and read the entire chapter. So verses 1 to 26. Follow along with me. It says, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said, to them, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand need go up to I. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of I. The men of I struck down about thirty-six of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of Yahweh until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord Yahweh, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan, only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say, since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So Yahweh said to Joshua, Rise up, why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban, and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become 
accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says Yahweh, for thus Yahweh, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then, you shall come near by your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which Yahweh takes by lot shall come near by families. And the family which Yahweh takes shall come near by households. And the household which Yahweh takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of Yahweh and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zarahites. And he brought the family of the Zarahites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He brought the household near man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against Yahweh, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold, fifty shekels in weight, and I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel. And they poured them out before Yahweh. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tents, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? Yahweh will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stand to this day. And Yahweh turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. All right, we've now read through the passage. Following our inductive Bible study method, we now want to start our analysis of the passage with just basic observations. So let's do that. Notice... Verse 1, it says, the people of Israel broke faith with Yahweh. Now, a specific man will be identified as the one who did this, Achan. We see that also in verse 1, but notice it says the people of Israel broke faith. And they broke faith with Yahweh by taking something under the ban. We already know from Joshua 6, that means what's going to come upon Israel? Trouble. And we have this city of Ai. Notice that what the spies report in verses 2 to 3 of our chapter they look at I and they say, we don't need to send more than two to 3,000 soldiers to take this city. Now we might wonder, was that a good recommendation? Was that bad advice? Is this the trouble of Yahweh already being manifest? We will learn later on from chapter 8 that I actually has about 12,000 total inhabitants. Their spies make it sound small and weak, and to some extent it is. And they give this recommendation to Joshua. 
Joshua heeds the report of these spies, and in verses 4 and 5, we see that he sends 3,000 men against tiny Ai. But what's the result of the battle? Well, Israel's defeated. They flee from Ai, and 36 of their own are killed. And then notice verse 5 says that the hearts of the people of Israel melted and became like water. Now, that description should sound familiar to you, because where have we heard that phrase lately? That was what Israel's enemies were experiencing when they heard about Israel's victories. Their hearts melted and became like water. But now the tables have turned. Israel is the one who is disheartened. So notice how Joshua and the elders respond in verses 6 to 9. They mourn. They're tearing their clothes, putting dust upon their heads. These are signs of mourning and grief. They're before the ark of Yahweh, expressing their lament. And Joshua even complains before God. Verse 7, he asks, why God brought Israel over the Jordan only to be destroyed. In verse 8, he admits he has no explanation for what just happened. In verse 9, he expresses concern that the surrounding peoples will hear of Israel's defeat, no longer be afraid of Israel, surround Israel, attack Israel, and destroy Israel. And then at the end of verse 9, notice Joshua asks Yahweh how Yahweh will glorify himself. What will he do for his own name if he lets Israel, his covenant people, be destroyed? Now notice how God responds to Joshua's prayer in verses 10 to 12. Yahweh plainly identifies the source of Israel's trouble. He says Israel has sinned by taking something from under the ban. And he says Israel has become accursed as a result and cannot stand before their enemies in battle. But God also gives instruction to Joshua as to what he's to do about this, what Israel's to do. In verse 12, he says, you must destroy the banned items from among you. Verse 13, he says, explain the situation to Israel. Tell them to consecrate themselves, ceremonially purify themselves. In verse 14, he says, cast lots. I don't know exactly how that was done, probably via the Urim and the Thummim of the high priest. Even those things, we don't really understand what they were, but they were used for understanding the Lord's will by lot. But God says, cast lots, and I will cause the offending man to be found out. And then verse 15, what is to be done with this man? He is to be burned along with all that belongs to him. Joshua obeys God's commands. And notice as he does so in verses 16 to 18, no one in Israel confesses to the sin or reports who it was who took this sin. It's only when the lot plainly falls on Achan in verse 19, and when Joshua asks Achan straight out what Achan had done, that Achan confesses to his sin. In verse 19, notice the way Joshua implores Achan. He says, give glory to God. Give praise to Yahweh. How is Achan going to do this? Well, by confessing his sin. Telling the truth. In verse 20, Achan does confess his sin. Which notice he says is against Yahweh. He's being very theologically correct there. And then in verse 21, he describes the progression of his sin. And it's very descriptive of all sin, really. He says, I saw coveted, I took, and I concealed. And what is it that Achan took? Well, he took some silver, took some gold, and he took a beautiful robe from the land of Shinar, also known as the area of Babylon. Now, these were precious items. I'm sure they were beautiful. But were they really worth transgressing God's ban? Were they worth bringing a curse on himself, his family, and all Israel? In verses 22 to 23, notice Joshua has some men confirm Achan's story, and they retrieve the banned items. And then in verse 24, and what follows, 
Israel carries out, all Israel carries out the necessary punishment for Achan's troubling Israel. All of Achan's people, his animals, and possessions are gathered together, and then they are stoned with stones. They are pelted with large rocks so that they would die. And then all of it, the bodies and the possessions, they are burned with fire in the valley of Achor. Achor, by the way, your Bible may have a note about this, Achor means trouble in Hebrew. It sounds a lot like the name Achan. So there's a little bit of play on words here. The troubler of Israel is justly given trouble by God in the valley of trouble. Notice two other pointed details in verse 26. Notice what Israel does after carrying out the sentence. They heap a great pile of stones over Achan. And also notice verse 26 says that these actions of Israel, they cause the fierceness of God's anger to turn away from Israel. Well, we've observed our way through the passage. Let's now go to the second step of the inductive Bible study method and talk about interpretation. A number of questions here I want to bring to your attention. First, why was the whole nation held accountable for Achan's sin? Hmm. Well, part of the answer has to be the terms of the ban, as articulated in Joshua 6, which we read. The ban was a particularly serious injunction for Israel to follow, so if even one person violated the ban, all Israel would have been considered guilty. That's part of the answer. Another part of the answer probably has to do with the practical involvement of others in Achan's sin. Surely others saw or knew about what Achan had done, but they concealed it along with Achan. So this participation in and concealment of Achan's sin shows that this was not simply an individual sin, but a corporate sin. And thus, the whole group is responsible. But a third part of the answer just has to do with the defiling nature of sin. Yes, there's the terms of the ban from Joshua 6, and yes, there might practically have been involved others in Achan's sin, but there's also just the fact that sin is defiling. Though every Israelite, every individual Israelite, had an obligation to follow Yahweh, the nation itself was under covenant obligation to be a holy people. So when a source of defilement appeared in Israel, that source had to be dealt with by the people of Israel for the people as a whole to continue in right relations with God. Normal sins, unintentional sins, needed repentance, sacrifice, the atoning ministry of Israel's priests. But high-handed sins, defiant sins, sins like false prophecy or idolatry or adultery, these sources of defilement required the death of those who committed those sins. Really, the principle we see from the Old Testament law is the more serious and widespread the sin, the greater the need to cut off the rot of that sin. Otherwise, the wrath of God would not only come upon the particular sinners who committed those sins, but even upon the whole nation who was complacent and did nothing to deal with the defilement. And such sins not only defiled Israel in a positional sense, but in a practical sense. When great sins are tolerated in a community, others often yield to pursuing the same sins or similar sins. People learn not to fear God anymore. So Israel was called to be a vigilant and holy people, eager to pursue holiness not only individually, but also corporately. This is part of their remaining true to the covenant terms as given to them by their God, and they were failing to do so in this instance. So for each of these reasons, God's anger justly is put upon all Israel for Achan's sin. 
Now here's another question. Was Joshua's complaint in verses 7 to 9 unrighteous? Well, truly, some of Joshua's words sound a little bit like Israel's sinful complaining in the wilderness. You remember when they're tested at various times, they say things like, Oh, why did we ever leave Egypt? Why did God bring us out here only to destroy us? So Joshua sounds a little similar to that right here. But then notice at the end of Joshua's prayer what he requests or what he asks. He says, what will you do for your great name, God? This concern over God's glory, that doesn't sound like the unfaithful generation in the wilderness. That sounds more like another person who we've seen complain or pray to God. And that's Moses. Moses was righteous in his prayers before the Lord. So what's Joshua doing here? Is this righteous complaining or is this unrighteous complaining? I might say this is righteous complaining. Sometimes these two types of complaints can sound very similar, even use the same words, but the heart behind each is different. And it does show up a little bit in differences in wording. You remember my explanation in a previous lesson about righteous or unrighteous complaining. Righteous complaining, or we can call lamenting, it admits before God grief, pain, perplexity about his purposes, but, and this is key, it continues in belief in God. And it calls on God to keep his promises, believing that he will. That's what righteous complaining does. Unrighteous complaining, though, it not only mentions the pain and the grief and the perplexity, but it, it charges God with wrong over these things. God, you, you messed up. You, didn't, you let me down. You didn't do the things that you were supposed to do. It manifests discontent an ongoing unbelief in God. And yeah, Greg, I think you're right. This is an applicable issue for our own times. Maybe in your own heart you, you are feeling the pain and the suffering, the perplexity, but you want to continue in faith in God and not, not unrighteously complain before the Lord. That's not what Joshua is doing here. He's not being unrighteous in his complaint. Being unaware of Achan's sin, he had no explanation for what had taken place. And so he goes to God and he says, What about your promises, God? I know you're a God who can be trusted, but why am I not seeing your promises here? This is what Joshua is asking. And it's a fine question for him to ask as long as he continues to trust God. And of course, God clarifies the situation for Joshua. And here's another question. Why is Achan's family killed along with him? Now this question and this situation might remind you of a similar situation that we've seen not too long ago. And that's the situation with Korah's rebellion. Remember, Korah, Dathan, and Abram, the leaders of the rebellion, God not only judged those leaders, but everyone who stayed with them, the households who stood with him, they also were destroyed in God's judgment. And so we ask, why? Why did that happen? The answer there is really the same answer that we see here. And so, uh, I'm going to sound a little bit repetitious, but family members, they were responsible to confront sin in each other and to report sin if there is no repentance. You might be aware from the Old Testament law, he says, even if your son or daughter or your spouse, if they follow after another god or they commit one of these high-handed sins in Israel, it needs to be confronted. If you just conceal it, well, you are participating in the sin. You are complicit to some level in the sin. And that apparently is what's happened with Achan's family. They didn't report his sin. They didn't confront his sin, and so they suffer the judgment with him. 
But also, there's also what I said last time, though God prescribes in Deuteronomy 24:16 that children will not be put to death for the sins of their parents, they will not be executed judicially for the sins of their parents or vice versa, it is a fact of God's own severe judgment that when he judges certain individuals, there are consequences for those closely associated with those individuals, even family members. And we could multiply examples of this in the scriptures, but consider even just in the localized context, Israel is completing this conquest of Canaan, and what are they to do with the babes, infants, and children of the land? They are to kill them, along with the adults and even the elderly. But you say, but some of these are mere infants. They have no knowledge of right and wrong. They aren't able to choose between right and wrong. Why are they being put to death in the judgment? Well, the judgment really comes upon the people of Canaan as a whole, particularly the adults. But that judgment has consequences even for those who are children. Now, this is a tragic situation, but it is not unjust. This is a fact of our world. All of us are affected by the choices of those around us, the sinful choices and the righteous choices, even our parents. We experience undeserved blessing when our parents make good choices, but we also experience the consequences due to the sinful choices even of our parents. And where they receive judgment, where they receive the consequences of their sins, sometimes we do too. It's just a fact of life. So God is not being unjust in having Achan's family being put to death, though this certainly is a tragedy. We're seeing, we're seeing some principles about sin here. Now here's a question I'll ask you to answer via the comments if you can. What is the point of the pile of stones heaped up over Achan and his household? The purpose of that is not explained in the text, but I think we can, under, we can understand it. Why the pile of stones? Now, I'm seeing your comment, Richard. This is a sobering reality for the heads of households, a reminder that your family can suffer for your sins. I think that's definitely right. Yeah, Jenny is, writes that this is a memorial. It is indeed a memorial. Uh, not the encouraging kind of memorial that we saw when Israel crossed the Jordan, like, hey, this is the power of God on your behalf, but this is a sobering memorial. This is a testimony to what happens when somebody transgresses the covenant of God, when he takes something from under the ban. Not only was he destroyed, but look, all that was his was destroyed, his family, his possessions. This is a warning that other people in Israel would not do the same. And I think you're right, Rich. Even uh, a particular warning to the heads of households, others will suffer when you transgress the covenant of God. And really, that goes to my next question. And again, I'll, I'll look for your comments in the chat. What lessons can we learn here from this passage about sin and God's judgment? What are some of the lessons? Oh, Mark asks the question, where is it referenced that family members are to confront sin in their own families? I don't have the particular reference in front of me, but uh, I'm thinking of the section where it talks about if, if somebody in the midst of Israel goes after another god. It says that no matter who it is, whether it's a beloved family member, that your eye shall not pity him, but that person must be put to death. So you can see that there's some level of confrontation or reporting that must be taking place there. And so other sins were treated in a, in a similar way in, in Israel. But what are some other lessons that we can see from 
this passage about sin and God's judgment. I see Roy made a comment here uh, related to the fact that this shows the holiness of God and the judgment of God that comes upon sin. And this is a very important reminder for Israel and, of course, for all of us. We're getting a little bit into application now. But we are so tempted in our flesh to treat the holiness of God as less than it is. You say, oh, this sin is not such a big deal. Oh, I'll just repent of this sin later. But we're seeing once again in the Old Testament that God says, you need to understand. You need to understand my holiness. You need to understand the seriousness of sin. It brings this kind of judgment. Now, God doesn't always deal with sin the exact way that he does here. But he does deal with sin very severely at certain times so that we would learn for the other times. I'm reminded of a somewhat similar occurrence in the New Testament where we have those two people in Acts chapter 5 who pretend to give a certain amount to the church, but they hold back a certain amount. And this was lying before God and before the people. And what did God do? He struck them down miraculously, suddenly. He didn't do that every time somebody lied in the church, but he did it at the beginning so that people would learn that God is holy. Yeah, Mark, another good principle we see from this passage is that sin defiles and impacts many. And this goes back to what Rich was saying before. And that is, think about how Israel, all Israel was affected by just one man's sin. And 36 people died in Israel related to that man's sin. And then the family of the family of Achan was put to death over this sin. Sin has consequences, and not just for yourself, but for others. And this is still true. We can go right to the New Testament and what exhortations we hear there about the defiling nature of sin, and especially the instructions given to the church about the church's need for purity and the church's need to confront sin within its midst. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, where he's dealing with a, church, a situation in the Corinthian church where there's a man in notorious sin that nobody was confronting. They were even boasting about their tolerance, apparently. And this is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as, fact you are, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we can see here that God is holy, that sin is serious, that judgment does come from God for sin, that sin impacts other people, that sin defiles. What else do we see? Uh, thank you, Jonathan, for finding that reference, Deuteronomy 13, 6 to 11, related to Mark's question. Appreciate that. I think another thing we can point out here is that God knows all sin, and sin will not escape God's judgment. I mean, Achan, he did his best to conceal this sin. And most people in Israel, the vast majority of people in Israel, didn't know anything about it. But God knew. And in fact, the whole nation was suffering because of that person's secret sin. 
This is like what Moses says in Numbers 32. Numbers 32, thir- uh, verse 23, the latter part of the verse says, Be sure your sin will find you out. And Jesus says something similar in Luke 12, 2. Luke 12, 2, Jesus says, But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. We see this in our own lives. We see sins that were held secret for a long time suddenly exposed and to the great shame and uh, judgment of the person who participated in those sins. But even sins that are not exposed in this life, they will be exposed one day. And that's part of the reason why God says, repent now. Confess your sins now. Reveal them now. Turn away from them now so that they don't have to be revealed later to your shame and to your judgment. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And that is the beautiful mercy of the Lord. If you confess your sins and turn from them now, you will find God's mercy. But if you hide them, if you continue in your hypocrisy and your secret and selfish sin, God will judge you for it in the end. Roy uh, makes a good comment here. Another lesson we see from this passage is that God will lead, guide, and protect Israel, but only as they remain obedient to him. And we can see we can see that principle extends even to our own day. Not in the exact same way, because we are not under the theocracy of Israel, not under the specific terms of the Old Covenant. But it's true, God will not bless those who continue in sin, even secret sin. Now, I'm not talking about the prosperity of gospel here. Not saying that everything will just go well for you, you'll be rich, you'll be healthy if you just obey God. That's true, God's way is wise. It does often lead to material blessing. But we also know that those who follow Christ are promised trials, difficulties, and persecutions. So you're not going to be able to avoid that by doing what's right. In fact, you will bring more trials on yourself in certain senses because you do what's right. You will bring persecution against yourself. And yet, it is true, you will not experience the blessing of God as long as you continue in sin. And I'm talking most particularly about the spiritual blessings. You won't experience the joy of the Lord. You won't experience victory over outward sin temptations as long as you are cherishing idols in the heart. Or as long as you are cherishing other secret sins in your life. You can't compartmentalize sanctification. When you are holding on, you're clinging to a sin in a certain area, it will lead you to other sins. And if there's an area of your life where you do not wish to repent, well, what are you sacrificing? You're sacrificing a clean conscience. You're sacrificing the fellowship of walking with the Lord and holiness and the, the abundant joy that comes with Jesus' way. You cannot experience that. You cannot have that and have your sin too. It's really the same principle we see here. And really... This principle ought to be a motivation for our sanctification. The joy of the Lord is our strength, as Nehemiah says. It is the prospect of the reward of God, the joy of God himself, and it's to be our motivation for not going after sin. Because that's what we always face, right? The choice between the temporary pleasure of sin and the greater and everlasting joy of God. When we, by faith, choose to seek after the Lord himself and all the joy that comes with walking with him and in his way, then we're not tempted to go after the poisonous and fleeting pleasures of sin. But we cannot have that wonderful joy of the Lord in our sin too, even the idols of our hearts. And Mark gives a 
uh, a good quote from Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And Mark also points another good principle that we see from this passage. God is gracious even in his justice. He preserved the whole nation even though the offender had to be judged. And indeed, you can never really separate the, the attributes of God. His mercy, his love, his goodness are always there even with his justice and his wrath. So we see a number of important principles regarding sin and God's judgment. And they are relevant for us today. Now we're not going to read the rest of the account of the conquest of Ai. Uh, we, I recommend you read it on your own after today's lesson, but I'll just summarize it for you. Joshua 8 verses 1 to 29, God commands Joshua to take more men and to attack the city of Ai in a certain way. They're set up a ruse and an ambush, draw the defenders out of the city, then seize the city, surround the enemy soldiers and destroy them. Joshua obeys God, and the plan works. Israel destroys the 12,000 people of Ai at God's command, and they seize the property in Ai at God's command as well. Israel then burns the city. This is one of the three cities of the conquest that Israel actually burns, as reported in the scriptures. Jericho is one, Ai is the second, and then Hatzor, one we haven't talked about yet, is the third. All the other cities, they leave intact because they're going to live in them. But they burn Ai, and they leave it as a ruin, again, as memorial to God's power and judgment. Now, you can see this clear contrast between Joshua 8 and Joshua 7. When Israel has no accursed things in its midst, no abominations in its midst, well, God is again fighting for them, making Israel unstoppable in battle once again. And we see this in an even more striking way when we get to Joshua 10. So please take your Bibles and go to Joshua 10. Let me give you some background as we look at this passage. In Joshua 9, Israel unwittingly swears a pact with certain inhabitants of the land, the Gibeonites. Now, these Gibeonites, they had heard of Israel's God and Israel's great conquest, and they're in great fear of Israel, so they disguise certain messengers, send them to Israel, and pretend to be a nation that lives very far away. They say, hey, we've heard about you, you're so great, your God is so great, please, please make a pact of peace with us. We don't live close by, so you don't have to worry worry about us. Just make a, a treaty with us. Joshua and the elders of Israel are skeptical, but they see the disguises, and they're persuaded by them, and they do not consult God, and they make this pact of peace. Well, afterwards, it's only a few days later that Israel learns, like, learns that they've been had. The Gibeonites, in fact, do live in the land and actually really close by. But Israel has sworn peace and they do not wish to sin and dishonor Yahweh by breaking their oath. So they let the Gibeonites live. But only as slaves to Israel. The Gibeonites are now going to be perennially woodcutters and water carriers for Israel. But in reaction to this, in Joshua 10 verses 1 to 5, five great kings in southern Canaan, they get spooked over Gibeon's capitulation. Because Gibeon was a great city. It had other cities allied with it. And now Gibeon has made a treaty with Israel. Gibeon, or the, the other kings of Canaan don't like this. They don't, they don't like what it portends. Maybe other cities will do the same. So they decide to attack Gibeon, make an, uh, make an example out of Gibeon. So let's read what happens next in Joshua 10, verses 6 to 15. Follow along with me as I read this next portion. Joshua 10, verses 6 to 15. 
Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And Yahweh confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, Yahweh threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to Yahweh in the day when Yahweh delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it. When Yahweh listened to the voice of a man, for Yahweh fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp to Gilgal. Wow, this is really just an amazing account, amazing portion of scripture. Let's, we'll have to treat this passage a little bit more briefly for the sake of time, but let's make some observations. This is Israel's most dangerous battle yet. Five kings of Canaan and all their armies against Israel. Now, Israel's seen great victory in the past, but it was against single cities, single kingdoms. Can they face five at once and win? What will be the outcome? Well, notice in verse 8, God assures the outcome before Israel's even gone to battle. He says, you will prevail. Don't fear them. And verse 9 says, Israel travels, all, or travels through the night and surprises their enemies in the morning. The enemies are probably surrounding Gibeon, besieging the city. Israel comes upon them, surprises them. And then notice verse 10, the enemies go into a panic. But why? It says Yahweh confounded them before Israel. It's always amazing to me in military confrontations or uh, even just great contests, even sports contests, it's amazing how one little moment could go in either direction. It could be a moment where the people rally and courage or the people panic. And, but God makes sure here, this surprise, this sudden arrival of Israel in the morning, it resulted in panic. God is able to make something that normally would result in panic not do so, but he can also take something where panic was not the necessary outcome, and he can bring it to pass, because he's sovereign. The enemies of Israel panic, and they flee. They flee westward from Gibeon via the ascent and descent of Beth Horon, and towards the Ajalon Valley. So the ascent of Beth Horon, they go up, they go up in elevation a little bit, and then they go down a long way via the descent of Beth Horon. So we're in the hill country of Israel, or Canaan at this point. So it's not like you can just go anywhere you want. There, there are certain valleys, certain ways of travel that you have to go. And these guys, these enemies, they're going down the descent of Beth Horon. Because that's pretty much the only way they can get away from Israel. This means they're primarily fleeing downhill, which meant they would have been particularly vulnerable to missile fire from Israel. Israel can stand on the higher elevation or on the sides of the valley and rain arrows down upon the fleeing, the fleeing Canaanites. 
But there's someone who's sending more missiles down upon the enemy than even Israel is. And that's God himself, according to verse 11. You see, God sends large stones, probably hailstones, and these are very miraculous. They apparently are selectively targeting the Canaanites, sparing Israel, all the way from Gibeon to Azekah, which is a Canaanite fortress on the other end of, uh, towards the other end of the Ajalon Valley. Now it says that these hailstones, they killed more people than even the Israelite warriors did. These must have been very scary stones. But then notice the striking declaration given by Joshua in verses 12 and 13. Joshua, apparently moved by the Spirit of God, speaking according to the will of God, he commands the sun and moon not to move so that Israel could keep attacking, pursuing the enemies of God. Now remember, Israel has come upon these enemies early in the morning. So when Joshua speaks, he indeed probably sees the sun in the east at Gibeon, while the moon is in the west above the Aijalon Valley. And so he commands them to not move according to their current positions. Now this is an amazing kind of prayer, amazing command, but what's even more amazing is that the sun and moon obey. The sun, we're told, stops in the middle of the sky and does not go down for an entire day, for about a whole day. Now that could be 12 hours, the daylight portion of a day, or 24 hours. Uh, the exact meaning of day here is not completely clear from the context, either 12 or 24 hours. Verse 14 emphasizes, though, that this was an incredible day, a very unique day. None others like it, because in that day, Yahweh listened to the voice of a man, and he fought for Israel. With this extra daylight, Israel fully pursues the enemy, and having accomplished a great slaughter, verse 15 says Joshua and his army returned to their base at Gilgal near the ruins of Jericho. Now, just an amazing account. Let's ask a few questions of interpretation, though. And again, you can answer this in the, the chat. What does this battle and the manner of victory once again emphasize to Israel and to us today? What's one of the main lessons coming through from this? What do you think? This is entirely consistent with the things that we've been seeing in Israel's conquest. Yeah, Greg says, God is powerful, powerful to save. We're seeing that once again. Craig says, God is sovereign. Yes, God is sovereign not only to cause panic in God's enemies, but to rain hail from heaven, to cause the sun and moon to hold their position. This is incredible power of God being put on display. And on whose behalf? On behalf of his people. And really, that's, that's quite amazing. I mean, how many times does God have to show us in the Old Testament or anywhere in the scriptures that he is powerful and he is powerful on behalf of his people? If, that's, if it's true that God is able to deliver victory in such a way here in the Old Testament, then will not God also be able to deliver his people in the present time? Will he not be able to keep his promises to them, even to you, even to us in the middle of the coronavirus? Is he not able to keep his promises? Greg says, God didn't have to save in such a miraculous way, but he, he did so in particular to exhibit his power and glory. 
Uh, Roy says, we see the impact of prayer and obedience to God. Yes, as we were seeing from the previous passage, when, you, when you've got this sin in your midst, you don't see the blessing of God. But look, in a very practical and material way for Israel, according to their covenant, when you follow the Lord, look at what he's able to do for you. Look at the blessing of God upon his people. He brings them the victory that he promised he would give them. And Mark says, God worked beyond the mere ability of his people. All of these things showing us, just as we saw at Jericho, God is mighty. He's mighty to save, deliver, and bless on behalf of his people, but he's also mighty to judge and destroy and to bring just severe wrath upon sin. These five Canaanite kings and their people, they were wicked. And God made sure that they were dealt a severe blow in this battle. So we see all these things here. And that should be an encouragement to us and a sobering reminder. Now, I want to ask a little bit of questions, though, about this sun miracle. How is it that the sun stood still? There's um, there's a little bit of a kind of interesting ways that people try and explain this. Some have tried to characterize this sun standing still as referring to an eclipse. They say what really happened here is that God caused an eclipse, kind of blocks out the sun so that the people of Israel can remain cool as they pursue their enemies and fight during the day. That's an interesting interpretation, but it has nothing to do with what the passage actually says. <laughs> and there's nothing here about coolness or eclipse. Uh, that, that doesn't fit with the passage at all. But did the sun and moon literally stand still? I mean, from what we know about the, about the world today, when we see the sun move across the sky, the sun's not really moving. It's actually the earth moving. So isn't the Bible being a little inaccurate when it says the sun stood still? Well, this is being too hard on, uh, on the way that we actually communicate and the way that history is written. We should acknowledge that the passage is probably using phenomenological language. That is, it is actually describing matters as they appeared rather than as technically, scientifically accurate. And, but this is the way we speak all the time. We often refer to sunrise and sunset, and we're technologically advanced people of the 21st century. But we still describe things in phenomenological terms, how, how they appear. The same thing is probably happening here. The reason the sun stops moving and or appears to stand still is because what God is actually doing is that he's causing the earth to stop moving. He's stopping the earth's rotation so that the sun stays in its same position from those viewing it on the earth. This is not scientifically inaccurate at all. But someone might ask, wait a second, if the earth stops moving, wouldn't that cause all sorts of deadly chaos on the earth? And this is a fair question, because after all, scientists have determined today that the earth rotates at about a thousand miles per hour. And what would happen if something that's moving at a thousand miles per hour suddenly stopped? What if... What would happen to all the things on the Earth's surface? Well, they'd go flying, wouldn't they? <laughs> Everything would become a missile because of inertia, because of momentum. So let me ask you this question. How could God have stopped the Earth's rotation without everything flying all over the place? 
What do you think? Greg says, well, he created the earth, so it doesn't sound too hard for him to slow it in such, or to, to stop it in such a way that things don't fly everywhere. I can see at least two ways this might have come about. Magda asks, does it have something to do with gravity? Uh, Mark says, we can't explain it naturally. Well, we'll, we'll get back to just some of those uh, comments in just a second. Kevin says, it was just a miracle. Though certainly something non-normal is happening here. This is miraculous in, in, in one way or another. In terms of describing what is, what is taking place, it may be that the Lord slows the rotation of the earth rather than just stops it all of a sudden until it eventually stops. It's interesting, if you notice in the passage, Joshua says, Sun, don't move from over Gibeon. So that sounds like because Gibeon would have been in the east, the sun was in the east. Notice later in the passage, though, it says the sun went into the middle of the sky. So apparently the sun did move after Joshua uttered his command, but then it stopped. So it may be that what happened was God slowed the rotation of the earth in such a way that there wasn't the dramatic uh, inertia that would have happened if God suddenly stopped the earth. He slowed the earth until it basically stopped, and then he gradually increased the rotation of the earth so that the day would continue. That may be one way that he did it, or it could simply be that God stopped the earth and he also stopped all the momentum. I mean, we're talking about God here. He's able to do whatever he pleases. And so he can stop the earth and also stop the momentum too. We don't know exactly how he did it, but whatever way he did it, he made it happen. So God is able to indeed keep the sun where Joshua wanted it without the world falling into deadly chaos. And many of you are pointing out, yeah, he's God. He's not hindered by the laws of nature because he creates the laws of nature. And he's able to, he's able to do whatever he pleases. Now, or so as, I, as we kind of already said, whatever the best scientific description Whatever the scientific description of what happened here, this clearly was not normal, not natural. So what was God doing for his people? He was doing a miracle, a great miracle. I mean, think about the miracles that we see in the scriptures. This is one of the hugest. He kept the sun where it was as it appeared to the people on the earth for an entire day. This is the power of God on behalf of his people. And he displayed that kind of power in the Old Testament, but he still is powerful on behalf of his people today, even us. Now, one other word about this miracle here. There's a story that circulates every now and then about a NASA computer running a calculation in the 1960s, charting the movement in sun throughout history. And reportedly, this computer yielded a glitch in the simulations for the years of 1400s BC, and it revealed that there was an extra 24 hours in the solar cycle that could not be accounted for. Researchers couldn't understand, supposedly their NASA researchers couldn't understand where this extra day came from until one of them realized that this must be the 24 hour or the, the, the special day of Joshua as recorded in chapter 10. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, 
It's kind of a neat story, but is it true? Actually, it's not. Not only is there no sound historical evidence that research or realizations of this type ever occurred at NASA, but there's actually no way that they could ever have occurred. Computer simulations can only tell you what should have happened according to known inputs and parameters. If we don't know all the information, the computer can't run a proper simulation and we can't do a proper comparison. The only way a computer simulation could reveal a discrepancy in the movement of solar bodies in ancient times would be if the reachers knew the precise locations and movements of those bodies to compare with the computer's calculation. But of course, we don't have such detailed records from ancient times, so there'd be no way for this story to actually come about. Science does not prove or disprove the miraculous day of Joshua 10. But we don't need science's confirmation to know that this really took place. And why is that? Because God has made clear to us that he is and that his word is true. This is Romans 1 says, we all know deep in our hearts that the Lord is true, that he is indeed the God of the Bible, and we recognize it when his spirit moves in our hearts, when he opens our blind eyes to see. We know that God is, we know that he's revealed himself to us, or revealed himself to us in the Bible, and therefore that his word, this, this Bible, is authoritative and inerrant. It is totally accurate. And we can trust this word of God above any earthly authority and believe this word when no earthly word is available to speak. You know, it's very popular among biblical scholars today to deny the miracle of Joshua 10. They say, oh, this is too incredible to believe. No, actually, the truly incredible thing is to deny the knowledge of God, which we all have. And if God exists and he is the God of the Bible, then this is not too hard for him. And he indeed accomplished it. So, as our time is uh, winding down a little bit, let me, let's talk a little bit about application. We've been seeing application as we go along, but just three, three avenues of application that I want to bring to your attention based on what we looked at today from Joshua 7 and 10. First, we need to take individual and corporate sin seriously. We saw this in particular from Joshua 7. Though Israel is under special terms of, under its covenant with God, we also have been called to holiness. We cannot, out of some twisted idea of love, say, oh, you know, I'm just not going to, I don't even want to mess with that other person's sin. I don't, I don't want to say anything to them about it. Learn from the lesson of Achan and Israel. You're not confronting the sin. First of all, that shows dishonor to God. But second of all, it shows a lack of love to others because sin impacts others. No sin can stay restricted to one person. Others learn to do the same sin, or others are impacted by, impacted by the life of someone who is in sin. Now, there's a way to, be, to wrongly pursue confronting sin in others. We can do that judgmentally and hypocritically, and according to terms that are not actually in the scriptures. But let's get that faulty idea out of our heads that if you love people that you don't confront sin. And that's not true. Actually, love covers transgressions by pursuing people. That's actually what the end of the book of James says. He who brings back a sinner from his way, know that that person will cover a multitude of sins. And isn't that what love seeks to do? It wants to see sin covered. It wants to see sin paid for and atoned by God and fellowship with God restored. 
So we need to take not only individual sin, corporate sin seriously, but we also should be seeking the joy of God over the pleasure of sin. And again, this is something I emphasized when it comes to Joshua 7. This is our great motivation and sanctification. Even when we don't experience earthly blessings, earthly vindication, you do the right thing, but people are just not responding to it. That's okay, because you can have the joy of the Lord, the joy of pleasing the Lord, the blessing that comes with walking in his way. That ought to be your chief motivation as you pursue sanctification. And then thirdly, remember the power of God on behalf of his people. We see it in a titanic way in Joshua 10 and even in Joshua 8 and all throughout the conquest. This is God's power on behalf of his people. Why? Because God wants to wants us to get in our heads, which are so quick to doubt the Lord, that he is mighty and he is committed to his people. He will keep his promises, both to save and to judge. So what should we do? We should believe the Lord. We should obey the Lord. We should seek refuge in the Lord. If you have not yet come to the Lord via the only way, Jesus Christ, you need to do so. Repent of your sin. Turn of your sin. Seek refuge in the Savior, the only one who can make you acceptable to God. You can, who can do much better than merely protect you from the coronavirus. He can do that if he so wills it in his good pleasure. But more importantly, he can save you from the eternal consequences of sin and bring you into his presence, his, uh, his abundant life forever. Seek refuge in the Lord. Remember his great power and beware his great judgment. That's bringing us to the end of our time today. If you have questions, you can definitely email me or you can post something in the comments. I'll stay, I'll stay for a few more minutes or I'll stay for a little bit of time afterwards. But that's all for this week. Next week, we're going to cover the rest of the conquest and the distribution of the land to the different tribes. I'm so glad that you were with me today. Let me pray, and then I'll hang around a little bit to, uh, to just interact with the, with the chat. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the mighty God. You're the God who even stops the sun and the moon right in their position, or stops the earth so that they, it appears that they don't move. And you, you accomplish such mighty victories for the people of Israel, not because... They deserved it, but because you were gracious and you were committed, them, you committed yourself to them. And you've committed yourself to us, those of us who are in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for that. Because you are on our side. Indeed, as Psalm 46 says, why should we fear if even the whole earth is caught in a tumult? You are on our side. You will take care of us even through the trials and difficulties. Lord, thank you for this comfort, but Lord, we're also aware of the, the sobering word when it comes to sin and judgment. Lord, we cannot be nonchalant about sin in ourselves or in others. So Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage and the love that would even seek to address sin. Lord, I pray that we would not think lightly of your judgment, but we would fear you with an appropriate reverence and fear because you are the great and holy God. I pray, Lord, that you to bless and encourage the people today, even as they are home or in various places. And Lord, take care of your people. And we praise you, God, because we already know that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.